This is Farmland. Coming up, while the National Ploughing Championships battened down the hatches for Storm Alley last week, tillage farmers battled to save their crops. Professor John Sweeney will discuss Ireland's extreme weather events this year. Michael Lynch, the CEO of Kilkenny Mart, and Eddie Punch, the General Secretary of the ICSA, will outline their beef price concerns. But first, we have a special interview with the US Undersecretary of Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs, Ted McKinney. We're joined by US Secretary of Trade for Agriculture and Foreign Agricultural Affairs, Ted McKinney. Ted, thank you very much for joining us. At the moment, Ted, the US Farm Bill is going through Congress and in parallel with that, the Common Agricultural Policy is undergoing reform in the EU. Is there anything that the US can learn from the EU? Are you looking to the EU for inspiration on changes to the Farm Bill? I would say less than more. You always want to scope what other countries are doing with their programs like that. And I think there's a lot of similarity in the dedication to good stewardship practices and cost sharing and help on preserving the environment, addressing climate change, that kind of thing. But I would say in this case, the farm bill has, from, from four years ago, was a pretty good farm bill. There's not, they're not looking at a lot of changes here. So I would say you're always looking at your friends and your neighbors across the pond or wherever it might be. But I think this one is more modeled after and modifications made from the last U.S. Farm Bill than it might be uh, pulling from other like or similar programs. And what about on the EU side? Do you think there is there anything we can learn from the, from the U.S. Farm Bill? Well, I would say the one thing that's been very successful, this may surprise a lot of your viewers, but our farmers would just as soon not be supported at all by the government. Ideally, they'd like for markets to determine that and just be out of any, uh, or at least out of most support. And that's why uh, several years ago when crop insurance was introduced, which farmers like my own family purchase, um, that is wildly successful. That has proven to be a very, very good program. It isn't yet self-sustaining, but that's the intent is to get it there so that the government, uh, and like insurance programs, it's self-sufficient. Some would use it, some would not. It should pay for itself. And I think that is um, very popular with the U.S. farmer. I would say other programs that are very popular are the stewardship, sustainability, environmental health kinds of programs, also cost-shared. So... Um, so I don't see major changes, uh, just um, tweaks or something close to that would be, I, I would say, where the U.S. Farm Bill is headed. On the cap side, um, when it comes to reform, we know that there's going to be a lot greater emphasis on environmental measures um, post-2020 um, in, in light of tackling climate change. Um, how much responsibility do you place and does the U.S. place on agriculture in reducing emissions? Well, I don't think it's built in perhaps like it is or will be in the revised cap. But I, 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 think, I think your viewers should know that, that never mind what happened to the Paris Accords, 
Our farmers are still very driven to do right by the environment. Our farmers, your farmers, have always been the world's first and original environmentalists, and they sustain that. Nobody wants uh, poor quality of water or air or so forth. So those efforts continue on, whether there's a program or not. Sometimes it's because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes it's the cost share program. But I think the dedication to that is very strong and will continue to stay strong for a long time. It's a heritage of the land, a care for the land uh, kind of theme. So in sense, um, that might be something where there's similarities. But there's also a lot of differences too. I would also say that a lot of folks would say, I, th I think many people do not understand the cap. There's a view, probably not unlike the U.S.'s view, that there's heavy subsidies. There's not heavy subsidies in the U.S. Farm Bill. That largely went away in 1996 Farm Bill. And so crop insurance, lots and lots of cost share came in. So I suspect U.S. would like to see the cap reduced but they're not going to mess in your backyard and so have at it they would like to see the the see it reduced down in europe well i think our our farmers want markets to operate mm -hmm. and when markets are operating freely you just get rid of subsidies like that our farmers would love to get rid of just about all subsidies they prefer not have to have to have it but competition around the world still there's support of one level or another and so we are where we are. Um, agriculture often gets intense criticism on the climate front on emissions um, for its action to, to reduce carbon emissions from agriculture. Um, in the US, is it a similar, similar situation? Does agriculture take um, a lot of, of slack? Do farmers take a lot of slack um, for their action or inaction on climate change? There is, there, there, are, there is some, uh, you know, I think what I've heard, and it's not shrill, I would say, is, uh, is livestock uh, emissions. But I would say agriculture is still very much revered. I mean, farmers are held in very high regard. The trust and the believability of a farmer and a veterinarian are among the highest uh, when someone's being asked about agriculture. So I would say there can be some of that, but I don't think it's quite as pronounced as it is here. I think a lot of that too is because there's so much work been going on with that. For example, a great deal of our cropping is no-till or at best minimum till. Well, the less you disturb the soil, you have greater carbon sequestration, a very, very good thing. Many of our larger dairies have moved very much into a capturing of that waste and a conversion into uh, compressed natural gas. So there's a lot of effort to use um, life cycle analysis to bring any emissions down, whether it's waste or anything else. And I would say the trend line is up and very positive in that regard. So some noise, but I don't think it's pronounced. Because as um, last, last June, when uh, the U.S. announced that it would be, um, it would be removing itself from the Paris, the Paris Agreement, um, is, does President Donald Trump also have, uh, does he also believe 
in the power of agriculture to reduce emissions and the ability of agriculture to reduce emissions is that central to to him to his ethos i can't speak for the president i can tell you this movements toward doing the right thing by the environment have remained steady and continue so it's not like the u.s just checked off and said we're out and we're not pursuing these things anymore nothing of the sort Lots and lots of efforts on the farm, in our food processing industry, in many industries continue uh, very aggressively. So setting aside what the president's decision might, things continue in a very happy fashion, at least in my view. Um, on the trade side, um, Mr. Underse Undersecretary, Irish beef uh, got access to the US right. uh, back in January 2015 right. and um, although earlier this year the um, amount of exports had increased about 30% so about 900 tonnes of Irish beef mm -hmm. um, made, it, made its way over to the US um, and although it's developing it's, it's at a slow pace. Right. Um, what's your view on that? Why is it that it's kind of a slow burner? Sure. Well, I think there's two or three phenomena. First, it just takes a while to ramp up. Americans love U.S. beef, and our beef producer has been ramping up. But I'll tell you, we have gone out of our way to enhance and make room for and allow for and support the incoming uh, Irish beef. So I think it's natural forces. There's been some competition from other countries as well. So what I've shared with your uh, beef producers at the event here is stay the course. Uh, there's a market there for them, uh, but if anything, we have enhanced the opportunity for them to have some market access. No blockage of any sort at all by us. Minister for Agriculture, Food and the Marine, uh, our Minister for Agriculture, Food and the Marine, Michael Creed, was out in the US uh, last year on a trade mission, and uh, there, there were some further progress, further progress, for, further developments um, in terms of the marketing of Irish beef, um, that it's, it's marketed as grass-based, and the unique qualities of Irish beef um, will now be recognized in the US. The, the Department of Agriculture in the US approved right. that. Right. Um, so, are the will the retailers um just kind of get you know in line on that will it just it's just it just take a matter of time I, I think it'll take a matter of time there is certainly a a, a clientele that wants grass fed I would say the predominance of the American diet is they want grain fed but for that segment that wants grass fed and uh, is in, is requesting it I think therein is a very good opportunity for Irish beef. But I think this is just a matter of timing. It's a matter of when, not if. How much time would you say? Oh gosh, I'm not into the retailing community uh, enough to say, but I would say that, that it's gonna continue to be steady. And again, we embrace that. We, you know, we are a very open country for these kinds of competitors. I've always believed trade is a two-way street. If I win and you lose, that's not a very long or strong relationship. Hence, the work by our marketing, our ag marketing group at USDA to give them that classification that might give them a leg up. It's also hoped that um, US access for Irish sheep meat um, will be on the horizon as well over, over the coming years. Do um, American consumers know what sheep meat is? Do they, do they eat lamb? 
They do, and I think it's growing uh, slowly. Uh, there's just been such history with beef, pork, and poultry in any different order, and less so lamb. But no, the diet for lamb is growing. It's pretty darn good. And so uh, I anticipate that small ruminant uh, rule to be coming to closure pretty soon, and I think that would then allow access for uh, Ireland to send some lamb over. On the dairy side as well, it is more positive. There are more exports going out. Um, so there is an appetite out there yes. for Irish dairy products. Yes. Um, how, do they, how do Americans view Irish dairy? Well, I'm not an expert on the branding, but I know some of the, the brands. I mean, Glanbia, my wife and I have purchased Glanbia before. So, uh, so clearly it, it's, it's, it fits well in the mix. And again, I want to say this is one of the issues that is so important about trade uh, we continue to be very receptive to free, fair, and reciprocal trade. Hence the decision on Irish beef. Hence the decision and practice we have on Irish dairy. But it is decidedly very different in other parts of the world, and that's why you're seeing what I call this right-sizing on trade. Less so with Ireland, but with other countries around the world, because why should we open up the way we do to other countries' food and ag products only to find that there's not reciprocal receptivity uh, from the other side? And that's what I think is being addressed here. I think with Ireland, so far, so good. Ted, you were in Brussels as well this week. Um, yes. You were over there for talks. And um, what's your take on the, on the Brexit situation at the moment? I know there hasn't been a, a whole lot of development um, yeah. since... Um, over the last two, three years now. Um, so what do you think there are opportunities for Ireland between US, Irish trade negotiations post-Brexit? Are there opportunities there for us? Yeah. That's a tough one. As you know, we have not taken a position on whether Brexit's the right thing or the wrong thing. That's an autonomous decision that needs to be made by the country or the countries themselves. What I'm reading about is there's some tension. Uh, but just as I wouldn't want folks to get involved in the machinations of U.S. government, I'm going to refrain from passing judgment on that. I will say, though, we are open and ready to do business with whatever entity has that negotiating uh, desire. So I'm hoping we have some good discussions with Ireland today. I think we can build on what we already have. If UK decides to go ahead and Brexit, most certainly we would want to interface with them. But that doesn't mean we want to do harm to anybody else. So it all depends on how the agreement with the EU settles, uh, whether or not the UK goes through with the Brexit. My sense is that it probably will happen. It's what I'm hearing. And then it's just a matter of working with those countries that want to work with us. And um, finally, Ted, you have some Irish roots, I suppose, with yeah. a name like McKinney. You weren't going to be too far away. Um, based in Northern Ireland, is it some farming roots from Northern, Northern yeah. Ireland? Yeah. In fact, uh, both my paternal side and maternal side, Scotch-Irish, uh, spent some time in, uh, in, in the northern part of the island and made their way to the U.S., uh, well, centuries ago. But... Uh, we know the roots. Uh, sometime I want to get back and get up there because we, uh, we have pretty good genealogy. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have that chance to get up and see the homeland. 
Well, thank you very much, Ted. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Now, the high winds of Storm Alley caused considerable damage last week. Connor Finnerty visited one tillage farm in County Meath. Some farmers have been left counting the cost of high winds experienced last week. One of those is Brendan Martin from County Meath. He had 43 acres of maize sown in one field, 38 of which he estimates were lodged by Storm Alley. Um, we're in a field of maize here that got lodged last Wednesday with Hurricane Alley. Um, I was in here the evening beforehand and I was looking up at it and admiring the massive crop I had and came in 2 o'clock yeah, on Wednesday and it was all flattened to the ground. Broke about knee high and lay over. So we're here since yesterday morning around 8.30 trying to harvest this um, before it deteriorates. Um, seemingly it's okay for a week but it's not okay for two weeks. But, uh, we do contracting as well so I decided to get our own out of the way first before we go out and hire because there's um, probably 200 acres of stuff similar to this. Difficult weather conditions earlier in the year also affected the crop. Yeah, well, the spring came very late, um, I suppose the same for everybody all through the country. Um, we were due to sow spring corn and maize and at the same time near the end of all the sowing all the silage came in, the first cut silage. So like, there's a massive workload on, we had to hire in help, myself and Stephen there were partners in the silage and the maize. Um, but like, the first week of May we started sowing this within great conditions and then the drought hit and they got hard to get going. So it was, it was a struggle all, all summer watching it now, but it took off and it actually did really well towards the end um, until now. Before Storm Alley struck, Brendan had planned to harvest the crop this Saturday. Now he believes losses will exceed 100 euro per acre. So I estimate around two, two and a half ton losses per acre. Like, um, it's just impossible to get it all up. It is actually stuck to the ground. And we have to cut it one way. So we can go, we're cutting it the way it fell. So it's actually hanging out in front and you're cutting it at the bottom and dragging it in. But the sum of it is actually on the ground that he can't get. So there's not a lot we can do about it. Farmers overcoming extreme weather conditions has been a consistent theme over the past 12 months. From this time last year it was a challenge. Like we'd maize in this field last year and it was a challenge to get it out of it with the wet. Like there was tractors stuck all over the field. Actually we didn't even get to cut some of it because it was so wet. And then straight into a winter we didn't really get an autumn at all. It went from summer to winter. Then the spring was the winter again and then straight into the drought conditions. However, Brendan is confident that farmers will find ways to adapt. Farmers are fairly stubborn. <laughs> yeah, sure. Look at what else are going to do. Um, fact of life, like you can't determine the weather. Like I said, when I sold this crop, like if I knew it was going to be windy, I would have sown a shorter variety or an earlier variety, get it out before the wind. But you can't predict the weather. I'm joined now by climatologist from Maynooth University, Professor John Sweeney. John, we see in the VT there that the level of destruction caused by Storm Alley for maize farmers, mostly in the Louth, Meath and North Dublin areas um, over the last week and the scramble to, to, to harvest the crop. Um, why are we seeing so many extreme weather events? It's been one after another this year. 
Well, I think uh, the, the first thing that we can say is that um, Ireland's climate has been changing and uh, whatever you think about the extremes of one year to the next, uh, we can't really argue with thermometers. Uh, every farmer's uh, fields are now half a degree warmer than they were 30 years ago. And one of the things that happens when averages change is that the, me the, the extremes tend to change more and more quickly and more radically. And uh, what we've seen in Ireland over the past, uh, I suppose, decade or so is an increasing tendency of various extremes. Um, we've seen, for example, the first approach of a near-intact hurricane. Uh, we've seen uh, an extreme fodder crisis earlier this decade. Uh, we've, we're seeing another one now. We've seen a, an exceptional drought and we've seen the wettest decade in the past decade that we've had since Irish weather records began. Uh, now what really is causing this is, is a source of some controversy but a lot of people would believe that the, the jet streams which guide our weather have become more variable and are oscillating more north and south than usual and this is bringing us extremes of both kinds, uh, sometimes very cold weather like we had last winter uh, and sometimes the hot dry kind of conditions that we have this summer. But over a longer period of time um, we are experiencing wetter winters and drier summers which is what the, the models of climate have been predicting for some time and I think the reality is therefore that we have to face the fact that um, those kinds of extremes that we're getting now um, are likely to become more frequent, are likely to become more severe uh, in the future. It doesn't mean they'll happen every year. It doesn't mean they'll happen even every decade, but we are expecting the probability of the kind of uh, weather extremes that we've seen recently uh, increasing as time goes on. Is climate change solely to, to blame for this? No, we've always had extremes. Um, we've had droughts. Uh, we now know we've had droughts perhaps more frequently than in the past 40 years. If we go back further, if we go back a century or more, uh, droughts were a common feature of a more common feature of Irish climate than they have been in the past 30 or 40 years. Any extreme that you see today will undoubtedly have been experienced in the past. So we're not seeing something that uh, we've never experienced in the past, but what we are seeing is something that's more probable to occur in the future. And um, if you think of, uh, say, the heat wave that we had in the early part of this summer, um, we can now look at the climate change models that we run of the atmosphere and we, we now have the computing power to run those models not just once like we did in the past but maybe hundreds or thousands of times and we can say okay let's run it without climate change impacts from carbon dioxide let's run it with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere what's the change in frequency that will occur with that particular extreme and in the case of our heat wave um, this year, for example, we know that the probability was doubled, uh, is doubled now than what it was in the past. So those are the kinds of uh, modelling outputs which give us confidence that climate change is driving the frequency of extremes. But of course, uh, from year to year, we will have events which um, we can't attribute to climate change completely or, or even substantially, but we can say that climate change is driving a more variable climate and climate change therefore is telling us that we have as farmers for example to be much more cautious in how we approach the future to enable us to to be competitive what would you propose there in terms of in terms of risk management on farms to deal with such extreme events 
Well, I think that farmers have, they are themselves, I think, great stewards of the landscape. And there's no group in society better equipped to handle uh, weather and understand weather um, and how it impacts on their livelihood than farmers. And I think over time we've seen that farmers, um, they react and they respond to things that are changing. They, they will know, for example, at the moment that our warming has produced uh, slightly longer growing seasons for them in terms of grass and other, and other crops. Um, they will know also that the year-to-year variability has increased. What I would think that farmers have to do is perhaps uh, be more cautious about uh, not taking chances, not gambling on a continuation of the kind of conditions maybe that they grew up with 20, 30, 40 years ago. And that means, for example, you know, maybe having a bit more reserve in terms of especially fodder uh, for the future. Um, We've seen the number of cattle in Ireland uh, since 2011, for example, increase by three quarters of a million. And uh, that is obviously cattle that are grazing lands that could have been kept a bit more for for maybe having that safety reserve for fodder in years like today. So I think we have to question whether or not uh, we can go down the road of continuously increasing our our cattle numbers uh, at the expense of having that insurance policy uh, for, for fodder, especially in the years ahead. And also, of course, looking at opportunities um, and the opportunities that will arise will be maybe to change the model of some of the crops we grow. Um, maize, um, for example, you mentioned maize is, is one of the crops which will do very well in uh, Ireland's future climate um, and is a more nutritious crop for, for feeding cattle uh, than, for example, silage. So maybe there's a change in practice required as well to make uh, the opportunities which climate change gives Irish farming um, perhaps uh, make them more exploitable than we have in the past. And what about when it comes to investment, investing in um, expanding a farming enterprise, investing in new technologies? Um, is, is the weather and potential significant weather events something that farmers should also consider when they're, when they're budgeting for, for such investment? I think so, and I think uh, also um, they should be considering what is likely to be coming down the road in terms of, uh, of um, impositions from the national government and from Brussels in terms of the technology that will be acceptable. Uh, and one good example I can think of is um, you know, a splash plate spreading of slurry um, is something that I wouldn't be investing in, for example, in Ireland in the future. I think we're going to face a lot of calls for, um, for removing that and, and not spraying ammonia into the atmosphere the way we do because we're at the limit of what we're allowed to do in Europe as well. So I think we have to bear in mind uh, the technologies which will enable us to meet the obligations which are going to come uh, from Europe and from indeed from our own national government in many key areas uh, to enable Irish agriculture to be more compliant with the obligations that we have signed up to in terms of climate change. And of course, as you mentioned, farmers are the custodians of the land and they take their environmental responsibilities very seriously. And on the dairy side, we are the most carbon efficient in Europe. On the beef side, we are the fifth most efficient. Uh, do you think that agriculture is unfairly targeted in some ways on that on that argument? Well, you mentioned, mentioned efficiency, but you know, efficiency 
is not something that the atmosphere recognizes in any way. Efficiency in terms of uh, you know, um, greenhouse gases per kilogram of beef is not a statistic that the atmosphere recognizes. Um, all it recognizes is how much kilograms of, of greenhouse gases are going into the atmosphere. So if we're increasing the kilograms of beef hugely, we're undoing the, the benefits of that increased efficiency. So I think we, we simply cannot get away from the fact that in, in terms of the, um, uh, the amounts of greenhouse gases per calorie of food we produce, we are the second least efficient producer in Europe, not the most efficient. So we, we do need to look simply at the greenhouse gas emissions total, and that's very substantially increased in agriculture. It's gone up by 10% since 20, 2012, and it's continuing to rise and expected to rise at the moment till 2030. And I think farmers have to be conscious of the fact that society may not stand for that quite simply. Um, they may well seek uh, that the burden of controlling emissions um, should also be borne by the farming community more uh, overtly than they do at the moment. So I think there is a crunch coming for the model of Irish agriculture. Um, our greenhouse gas emissions per cow even are increasing because of the increased intensity um, of, of feedstock and so on that we give each animal. So I think that we do have to face the reality that farmers, as was called for in the Citizens' Assembly, uh, will have to maybe change the model um, and question whether FoodWise 2025 uh, is the way to go. Now, there's also, of course, two sides to this argument, and the other side is that some farmers have been doing very well, as you say, in dairying, where one third of dairy farmers last year earned over €100,000, um, and the average dairy income was around €86,000, I think. So that was a very good year, and they've had bad years, and obviously there is uh, problems with investment in infrastructure. But we do need to look after the family farm, and we need to get back to the basics of what the common agricultural policy was established for. It wasn't just purely food security, it was to enable rural um, development and rural uh, vibrancy to continue in Europe. And to some extent we've lost the vision of using agriculture as a means of maintaining a healthy rural landscape and rural uh, economy, especially for poorer farmers and for middle income farmers, which have been largely bypassed in the more recent CAP negotiations. John, if I could just bring you back to the, to the weather issue again, mm -hmm. do you think that the weather warning system that's currently in place is working? Is there sufficient time there for farmers to make the necessary moves to protect their crops? As we can see from, from the maize farmers, from the VT, um, that it wasn't enough time, they didn't have enough warning. Mm -hmm. Storm Alley caught a lot of people by surprise, um, there's no doubt about it. Um, it it um, especially caught people by surprise in the strength of the gusts in the Midlands and even in the east of Ireland. Um, we had a gust of 143 kilometres an hour in West Galway, which is an exceptional event. Um, but thereafter, the, the gust speeds were of the, of the orange warning category, which Metairn complies with in accordance with its European um, criteria. But I think it's fair to say that there will be events which will always catch us by surprise. Some depressions can deepen explosively, extremely quickly. And it would appear to me that Storm Alley um, was one of those categories where um, the, the deepening that occurred, the rapid intensification that occurred, 
um, was something that maybe caught forecasters a bit by surprise. But um, I think it's also true to say that that will always happen. Farmers do need to pay very close attention to Metairn um, as the, the, the main authority in forecasting in this country. And not to be, I suppose, um, inured by uh, warnings, because we can get warning fatigue, of course, after a while. And I think uh, that that's something that farmers above all should try and, and guard against. And, and if there is uh, a yellow or an orange warning, um, then I think uh, it's incumbent on farmers to take that very seriously indeed and do what protection measures they can. And of course it's limited in, in many ways as to what people can do in, 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 in the rural communities to protect themselves. But there, there are things they can do which should be taken very seriously. We'll leave it there, John. Thank you very much for joining us. Next up, Conor Finnerty has this report from a beef farmer in Meath who has serious concerns about the future of his sector. James Cosgrave farms just outside Enfield in County Meath with his son James Jr. Running a suckler operation alongside a sheep enterprise, James noted that farmers have been faced with plenty of additional costs over the last few months. This year was the worst year we ever, ever had. My lifetime was the worst year we ever had because we had this time last year it was wet, very, very wet. We had to put in the cattle early last year. Uh, and we thought this time last year, as well as that, we thought we wouldn't make any, have to make any silage in 2018. We had that much of it. But as it turned out, we just barely had enough to get us out. And then come the spring, it was so wet, and then it was so cold. And then we had the snow, and we had to put in the, leaf, the sheep into the shed in the snow. And they were worse off in the shed than they were outside at the time, because there was drifts in the shed. And then we had about a f three weeks or a month of normal sort of weather in, the, in, in May and the grass was growing great, everything looked great. And then come the drought and it was, we, we used to be watching the rain, watching it and it never came. With the result that we had to put in the cattle, they didn't thrive as well, we had to put them in and it has cost an awful lot of money to keep them in, in feed at the minute, you know. And I don't think that at the way the price of the beef is dropping, I don't think the cattle our, I don't, doubt if they're marking time. That's about all we'd have to go. Because there's no reason for, for, for the price drop that's going on. James stressed that it is not sustainable for beef farmers to continue with prices where they are. No, it's not viable. It's not viable at all. And only for the, we're hanging in, hanging in, and hoping for a good day, and hoping that we get the single farm payment in time. Other than that, it's not viable at all. It's not. The beef sector is getting left behind. The meat industry is, is, has reneged on everything. That the, the dairy sector, if you look at it, they've got all the help. The dairies have helped them out as much as ever they possibly could. And good luck to them. Great, great to see them. But the beef fellas, they've done the very opposite. They went about cleaning us. But the very minute the price dropped, the price of feed went up, and they're still thinking about that. Now still satisfied. They want to still cut it more. I don't think after a while the cattle won't be there because farmers can't stake this. He also noted that the mar trade has suffered due to fodder shortages. The trade in the marts is not very good because farmers haven't got feed. And you can't, ex you can't expect to farmers to be buying cattle if there's no feed and, or have to buy expensive feed. So it's, it's, it's not going to be viable. James believes the beef industry needs to show more support to farmers or face losing them to other sectors. Why should... Uh, the beef farmers have to discontinue what they're doing all their lives just as, and give it to somebody else. I, I think that it has to be an, an industry that should be able to stand on its own two feet. And it has stood on it for a long, long time. 
You know, there was more money in it 40, 50 years ago than there is now. The near future doesn't fill James with much hope either. It, beef needs to be five euros a kilo. And I, I can't see that happening now. Here to discuss the current beef price situation are Eddie Punch, the General Secretary of the Irish Cattle Sheep Farmers Association, and Michael Lynch, the CEO of Kilkenny Mart. Eddie, can you outline the current price situation at the moment and can you explain why it's so low? Yeah, what's been going on now for the last few weeks is a concerted effort to drive down price paid to farmers for beef. So at the moment we're looking at around 370 a kilo for you know base price. Uh, last week it was 375 and it's been coming down five cents a week for the last number of weeks. So there's a very clear orchestrated effort to drive down the price and farmers are at their wits end. And I think we in ICSA are shocked at the absolute ruthlessness in the year we've just had, at a time when farmers have been through the longest winter in years, snow in March, drought in June and July, huge additional cost, under huge stress and pressure, and yet price has been driven down at a time when the demand situation in supermarkets and retail outlets across the UK and Europe is quite good. Um, and I, I think what's happening here is they want to keep get the price down lower so that when, get, when beef gets scarcer later in the year, it has a long way to come back up to a, re a reasonable price. And you know, you look at the Newford farm, which only this week has admitted that suckler beef needs five euros a kilo to break even. And we're talking about 370 a kilo for prime beef. It is scandalous in our view. Uh, and we wonder what kind of people would would do this in a year when farmers are on their knees. We see, at least in the dairy and the grain sectors, there's some, you know, compensation, if you like, in the sense that grain prices up higher after a very difficult year in scarcity. We see dairy co-ops trying to support their farmers a little bit, but the beef farmer and the sheep farmer are left totally out in a limb by, by the meat industry. And I'd really ask, what kind of people would try to profit here on farmers in a year like this. Eddie, how fearful are you and your members that it actually might drop even further? Look, people are in a very bad position. Right now, people are trying to scrambling to get enough fodder together for, for the winter. They don't want a repeat of last year, but they're so far behind. We still have roughly a 10 or 11% deficit in fodder. It's higher in parts. So people are you know, doing their very best to have enough fodder, but also, of course, they don't want to have too much stock this winter. So they're, they're weak sellers at the moment. They're in a very vulnerable position uh, and the options are limited for those farmers. Now, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is the way in which the differential between Irish beef price and UK beef price has widened this year. The start of the year it was around 25 cent. It's gone to about 50 cent now. So as just at the point when they're driving down Irish beef prices, UK beef prices are steady to improving. So the differential now on that 360 kilo steer is now 180 euros, and there is no justification for that. Um, it really you know, begs the question, why would we, as farmers, subscribe to the strategy to expand uh, Irish meat exports, the whole food-wise strategy to expand, 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 run faster to stand still at a time when the meat industry has shown it has complete indifference. It is reprehensible what they are doing. 
reprehensible. What kind of people, in a year when farmers are on their knees, when we get stories of people who are under stress, who are under pressure, would actually say, let's make even more profit this year. That's scandalous. Michael, um, can I just bring you in on the impact of the fodder shortage and how is it impacting on store trade at the moment? Yes, Claire, well, I suppose the simplest way of putting it is that it's very challenging at the moment, <clears throat> the trading situation for farmers. And uh, obviously a good bit is exacerbated, as Eddie says, when the prices are coming down in the factory, that has a knock-on effect on the March situation. But feeding into that situation is the father situation, and that has having a major effect on it this year. It's, it's distorted things, because as Eddie said, you've had, really this is going on since this time last year, you've had a long and expensive winter, followed when all stocks were depleted, followed by a long drought during the summer when they weren't uh, replenished. So people now have to make decisions. And what you're seeing is, you have a catch-22, you've got some people that uh, want cattle to sell not earlier than they normally would because they see a problem going forward. On the other hand, you have the buyers who would normally, they're looking at, they have the same situation with a shortage of feed. And it's resulting in one or two things. I suppose the buyers are saying, I have enough feed to last me till X amount of time. I won't purchase any stock until later than I normally do. Or you have some of them saying, I'm not going to purchase anything this year. I'm getting a good price for the uh, feed to sell and uh, they're doing that. Now, how much that is going to happen in the longer term, I don't know. But it is having a major effect. And what you see is probably the heavier stock, um, factory fit stock, are stable. Not as good as last year, but they're stable. There is an interest in those. It's the cattle that are, say, 350 to 450 kilos, longer term cattle. People are scared. They can't look that much forward. The father is feeding into that. And they are a very challenging situation for those at the moment. What about the competition ringside as well? I suppose you were expecting the exporters to have a much bigger presence, uh, but on the back of the Turkish situation, the Lira situation, um, how, how would you describe competition ringside? Yeah, it's, 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 uh, I mean, there isn't competition there at the moment. Uh, those situations have meant that exporters are not really that active at the moment, and, more, and particularly uh, in the West where the, the weaning sales are probably more prominent at this stage, it's more farmers that are buying uh, than exporters at this stage. And that is not a help to the price as well. For the um, really good stock, they are, there is a certain market for those, but with the Tucker situation, and even um, Spain and Italy are not that enthusiastic at the moment, that is a, a challenge at the moment. And certainly it wouldn't really have kicked off to any level compared to what other years um, at this point in time. Michael, do you think the factories are solely to blame for the price decline? Well, I suppose it all comes down to supply and demand. And where you have a greater supply than demand is there, well, somebody's going to benefit from that and it's not going to help prices. And I suppose the factories for the last uh, number of months, they have by default got a lot of stock produced to them uh, because of the, the father situation. And that's not helping. And they're, I suppose they're taking that opportunity. They're dropping the prices. And that is uh, having a, a severe knock-on effect to our side, the market side, trade, trading side of things. Eddie, are you engaging with the factories on this? Are you talking to them? Yeah, we have the beef roundtable coming up next week. But, you know, look, there's a number of problems here that are feeding into this. One is the way in which the factories have got into the business of feedlots. And I think this really has to be looked at, whether it's, it's appropriate or right that factories who, in, who are involved in processing 
should also be in the feedlot business because they've been using feedlots to keep a control on beef prices as well you know at times of the year when maybe supply gets a little bit scarce and at the same time now they're using the beef price to interfere in ways with the store trade because they're sending very strong signals out which is deterring people from buying stores so that their own feedlots can then buy stores at a little uh, less than they might otherwise do. So we have to have a look at what's going on here. I think also we have to look at, you know, Commissioner Hogan has been doing work on the unfair trading practices in the food chain, but I think we have to go a lot further. Uh, as Michael said, supply and demand is central. But there's, you know, every year we, we see that, you know, the food chain is returning better margins to everybody else along the food chain and squeezing the margins there for farmers all the time. And we have to have a look at this and we need to have more transparency around who exactly is getting what. I think, you know, look, supermarkets have to look at themselves as well and say, are they happy? And we saw there last week where Pat McDonough of Supermax said that he'd be happy to pay a little bit more for beef, but only if it went direct to the farmer. And fair play to him for that. But I think supermarkets too, who like to, to you know, boast about how they use Irish uh, beef, need also to ask themselves, are they happy if they're using Irish beef off the back of producers who are going under? That's a real question we have to look at as well. Uh, so I think we need more transparency in who's getting what out of the food chain. I think we need to look at this question of whether it's appropriate. The processors should also be uh, finishing cattle in their own feedlots. And I think we need to ask hard questions of supermarkets who like to tell the consumer that they're supporting Irish farmers. But is it really sustainable the way you're supporting Irish farmers if you expect them to work for nothing? So we have to look at all of these questions. Michael, we saw in the VT there just how challenging and difficult the situation is on the ground for beef producers. Um, how would you describe confidence ringside looking ahead for the future of the sector? Because this is only one element of it. Six months' time, we've Brexit. Uh, I'd say confidence at the moment is very low uh, uh, for some of the factors we've already discussed. And <clears throat> uncertainty always creates a low confidence factor. And things like Brexit and where that's going to go makes people very, very cautious. And that affects the market trade in, particularly for the uh, cattle that they might be purchasing for 12 months' time. When you're looking that far ahead and you see all the uncertainties there, that is having a major effect around the ring at this stage. Farmers are optimistic. Uh, if they get a little bit of confidence, that, that helps. They need confidence from the, the factory side to increase the price, give them a feeling that uh, you know, this worth uh, investing in, in buying purchasing cattle again. And I know even in the last week on the father situation, as I came up the road today, you see lots of people at silage. Reports are that's better than, than, than uh, anticipated. So things like that help, a little bit of confidence uh, helps a lot, but look, certainly uh, farmers at this stage, the confidence would be challenged at this stage to them. Well, we'll be watching the situation very closely over the coming weeks. Thank you both very much for being here and thanks very much to all our guests for joining us this week. If you want to get in touch with the farmland or agriland teams, you can contact us directly by email or by phone. Also, a big thanks to our sponsors, Homeland. We'll be back at the same time next week. See you then.